Hello and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study here at Celebration Church in Green Bay, Wisconsin, being joined also by our campuses over in Stevens Point and in downtown Appleton, as well as uh, home groups and people all over the world, literally, who uh, listen to these Bible studies. Good to have you with us. We are in the book of, uh, well, we're in the New Testament, and we're going through the New Testament in the order that it was written, so starting after the Gospels. Uh, starting with the book of Acts. We've been reading through the book of Acts and everywhere in the book of Acts where it says someone wrote one of these epistles, we would go directly to those uh, letters, the Bible for whatever reason, I've never quite understood it, is not in order. It's not all that big a deal in the New Testament. It's extremely confusing in the Old Testament because it's all over the place. It would make a lot more sense if it was actually in the order that was written so the events would make sense. You've got to really understand the Old Testament to be going jumping around those books to know exactly what they're talking about at any given moment. Certainly lots of study guides for that sort of thing. Or you can actually buy Bibles that are, they put them in order. They're called chronological Bibles. So that's what we're doing for the uh, New Testament. Now, we are in Acts, now the 27th chapter. There's just uh, two chapters left. And then we get to the end of that. We will continue to read the epistles in the order they were written. Now from here on out, virtually every time Paul writes, he's writing as a prisoner because he's been arrested now and <clears throat> this is his lot. Uh, he, he's been arrested. He went down to Jerusalem. Uh, it was prophesied that he'd get in trouble. and <laughs> He did. And they dragged him off to Caesarea. He sat there for a couple of years until uh, they could uh, hear his case. Uh, the Jews were trying to get him transferred back to Jerusalem, his life would be in jeopardy. So as a Roman citizen, he appealed to Caesar. Once he appeals to Caesar, he gets to go to Caesar. Uh, <clears throat> actually, King Agrippa and his wife Bernice, we assume it's, it's his wife. There's some uh, writings in Roman history that it was, he actually married his sister. A lot of decadence going on back there. But anyway, so whatever the case, and he was so persuaded by Paul, he said, man, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could have let him go. Well, thanks for letting us know now. But by this time, he had to appeal to Caesar because his life was in jeopardy. And they now get on a boat and they sail all through here, coming around Cyprus, around here. They have a few stops along the way in some of these tiny islands here. Uh, they get in trouble. The wind is, is kind of becoming problematic. Stop at this little place on the Isle of Crete called Fair Havens. Juts out just a little bit, so it's got a view of the northwest, southwest. Uh, and then by the time they get out here, they just get in a world of hurt. And there's this massive storm, and they lose total control of the ship. As you can well see, <laughs> they could have been in some serious trouble uh, by God's grace, because they're headed for Rome. I don't think they would have come here. They probably would have ended up here, might have even come through the Adriatic Sea and, and parked here, early, you know, closer to Rome. We don't know, it doesn't say what they're actual port was, all we know is they get in trouble, they get blown around, they don't even know where they are, and miraculously, in the midst of all of this water, they land on the island of Malta, and they are saved. Uh, it looks like it's an easy thing to find. If you've ever, you have to remember, these are big countries, a lot of ground. Finding a little tiny island out in the middle of the ocean is unbelievably difficult. It's, uh, I mean, miles and miles and miles of nothing. People always say, you know, someone gets lost out of sea, why can't they find them? 
it's, it would be easier to find a needle in a haystack. I mean, you're talking serious acres and miles of, to try and cover. That's why it's almost impossible. Eventually, you know, sometimes they find, sometimes they can't. An ocean liner goes down. You'd think they could find the ocean liner. One would think, but nobody has any idea of the kind of land covers there. So anyway, the chances are headed for trouble. They could have easily been blown out here and destroyed. They wind up at Malta and, uh, and then eventually taken into Rome. So now we're going to pick it up at chapter seven, 27. <clears throat> and Luke now, who has joined Paul, uh, uh, up to this point, Luke has been writing, he's writing the entire book of Acts. He's also the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke. And then his next writing to the same guy by the name of Theopolis uh, writes the, the story of Acts um, based on historical records and word of mouth and stuff like that. At one point, he finally actually joins the group. And you can tell by the way it changes from they went here, they went there, to we went here, we went there. Now he's with them. And uh, gets away from them for a little while and then back again. Whenever he's part of it, the detail, the level of, level of detail in the writing jumps uh, dramatically. <clears throat> and now, in chapter 27, it's like he just lets himself go. And he writes, very. this is about as close as you can find anywhere in the Bible that would be as close as to a novel written. Because he gives very strong detail of every little thing that happens Honestly, it's actually fun reading. We're going to read it together here in just a second. But uh, much of the accounts in the Bible are not at this level. I mean, you know, this happened and that happened. And then you wonder, well, what was that like, right? And, and we don't know. They leave it up to one's imagination. Like when Jesus is out sleeping in the boat and this big storm comes up and it says they were freaking out and they woke up Jesus and Jesus said, what's the matter with you guys? Gets up, calms the ocean Boom, everything's coming. An amazing event. But clearly not the way I would have written it. <laughs> it's like I would have described the waves and the winds coming up and we're freaking out. Somebody wake him up. I ain't waking him up. You wake him up. I mean, there's finally, they do it and what it was like when he spoke and how everything calmed and everybody looked at you like, holy cow, what was that? All right? You don't get that kind of detail in the accounts of scripture. It pretty much just stays to the facts uh, for all this history that is caught in here, thousands of years, they pretty much just stay to the facts. They don't give a whole lot of really close detail of what is going on. Uh, and that's why they're not just stories. They're not written like stories would be written. I've often said if the Bible is a collection of stories, they're the worst storytellers ever in the history of mankind. Tell us a story, give me some detail, right? But they, don't, they just kind of, that, 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 that happened, and just this historical record. Every once in a while, you get a little bit of insight on what they were thinking and feeling, but it was all as need-to-know kind of situation. Well, Acts is much more detailed now that Luke, the first-hand account, is writing this, and then he really gets into detail in chapter 27. Let's take a read, okay? As he starts describing this trip that I just showed you that they went on. And by the way, I don't say this to pick on you, uh, I'm glad you come. Seriously, you have no idea. I'm thrilled that you're coming. You're hearing the word of God. And I know a lot of guys, you know, get their <clears throat> Bibles on iPads and stuff like that. But if you, have, if you don't have an actual physical Bible, you really should get one, okay? And you should really bring it 
on Wednesday nights because you get a feel for where stuff is and, and where to look at and where to find things and get your knowledge of the Bible and get a feel. You can read ahead, see where, you know, you can cheat, see what I'm about to say. <laughs> I'll look back and make sure I didn't make that up. Uh, that kind of stuff. It, it's good to actually get familiar with this. So Wednesday night, one night a week, bring your actual Bible. If all you've got is one of these gigantic home Bibles, you know, might want to get a smaller one. But to bring one with you, so you can get familiar with it. Get the feel of the pages. All right, so Acts, the 27th chapter. When it was decided that we, were, uh, that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from, and I ain't going to say how to add, Adramidium, Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristocardus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed in Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. Against us. You know what the lee is of an island? Class? Anyone in class? The not windy side. Exactly. So if the wind is blowing like this, this would be called the windward side of the island. And on the flip side is always the leeward side of the island, where the winds are the least. So they came along the leeward side of Cyprus because the winds were really blowing hard at them. Your nautical lesson of the day. Today's word, Lee. All right? So, uh, when we had sailed across the open sea off the coasts of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off I don't even know how to say that. Sinitas, which is locked away in here. Okay, they're really plowing, trying to get along. The winds are so bad. They get to Sinitas barely. Um, when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salomon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, on that big island of Crete there, near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost because of all the slow progress they were making because of the difficulty of the winds. And sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement on the calendar, so just referencing to them what uh, time of the year uh, it's closer to Yom Kippur. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Now, in all fairness to the centurion, who are you going to listen to? <laughs> We have a prisoner who's this religious guy who's telling you, we better not do this or bad stuff will happen. Well, you don't know who this guy is. You don't know 
what he knows and what he doesn't know. They're going to listen to the captain and to the owner of the ship. They don't want to die. Nobody wants to die. The guy, the captain doesn't die. The, 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 the owner of the ship doesn't want to suffer a loss. But uh, they didn't listen to Paul, who had an insight into these things given to him by the Holy Spirit, something these guys had no idea about. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, that little harbor there in uh, Fair Havens, uh, the majority decided that we should sail on, sounds like a song, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. Oh, so they got in big trouble. That's where they were headed. They got way blown out. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. All right, guys, let's go. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it. And we're driven along. I'd missed the little thing about uh, uh, Phoenix, which is, it's not showing it on here, but somewhere along here is where this has got to be, probably on the end because it says it could see to the, these different directions. So they're aiming for here. They get blown way out to here and eventually crashed into here. And this is, you know, this is a long journey in a boat that, you know, is cruising along, best case scenario, a few knots per hour. And, uh, and they're in big trouble. So they're trying to hug this little deal here, and it gets so bad, they go drifting out to sea. So here we go. As we passed the lee of a small island called Caudia, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. A sea anchor is uh, it's not an actual anchor that's supposed to hit the bottom like a big metal anchor. It's uh, kind of like a big sock sort of thing that drags through the water just designed to slow it down. Uh, because they're getting pushed where they want to go and they're trying to slow it down so they can, once this wind passes, they can recover. Uh, <clears throat> so they dropped the sea anchor and they just let the ship be driven along. In other words, they, they just let it go. There was nothing they could do. It was totally out of control. Some, for some of you control freaks, you've been really miserable <laughs> because they had no control. They couldn't do anything. They were just trying to ride it out. They were getting hammered. When you start dropping ropes to wrap around the ship to hold it together, that's a bad day. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. This cargo is worth a lot of money. They're doing this in absolute desperation. They are terrified for their lives. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. They're not going to be able to control much of anything now. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. Now Luke's 
giving you the play-by-play here, okay? What happened? This is the next thing. That happened. Again, this kind of detail you don't generally see. He's there. We're doomed. We're doomed. This is it. It's all over. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them, and I think at this point we're going to see it's like two weeks. Nobody eats anything for two weeks. I go, two hours, I start getting nervous, you know, two weeks. But they're freaked out. They're absolutely terrified. You're so terrified you don't want to eat. This is where they're at. And these were grown, tough, seasoned men who undoubtedly had spent their entire lives on the water. They knew the mess they were in. This is bad. They're holding it together. They're getting hammered. They start throwing over the cargo to lighten the ship. They take the tackle, throw it over, and they're just letting it run with a sea anchor dragon behind them. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Man, <laughs> Paul, he's got to stick it to him, right? <laughs> Man, you should have taken my advice. Not to sail from Crete, then you would not, you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. I'm thinking, really, you could spare the I told you so, is what I'm thinking. <laughs> Seriously, now you're gonna stick it in our face. Look, the guy was a man, right? Guys like to stick it to other guys. I was right, you were wrong. <laughs> but now I urge you to keep up your courage because none of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Well, do that math. <laughs> that means we're all going to wind up in the water. Last night, an angel, you know, how do you know this? Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we're, we must run aground on some island. So the spirit of God reveals to him, an angel reveals to him, you guys, I mean, they've lost all hope. They all think they're going to die. Luke thinks he's going to die at this point. Angel says, Paul, I have a plan for you. I want you to go to Caesar. He wants him to proclaim the gospel from the heart of Rome itself, which is the heart of the power of the world at that time. You're going to get there, and I'm ever going to keep everybody safe on your journey. But you're going to run into some island. Again, not a lot, a lot of islands to choose from. They don't know where they're going. On the 14th night, we were still driven along across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again. That's the uh, nautical term for they drop a rope with so many knots in it. And then when it hit the ground, you'd see how many knots, and you could tell how deep it was. So the first time was 120 feet. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rock, they dropped four anchors from the stern. The stern is the back of the boat. And they prayed for daylight. So now we're not just dealing with a sea anchor slowing us down. 
It was 120 feet. And it says they sensed it. How would they sense it? They're seasoned sailors. You know, I wouldn't know anything. Like, what's going on? But they get, man, something's happening. They get, I don't know if it's the sound of the water, the rhythm of the, who knows? It, it has been covered day and night. No, I mean, this is two weeks solid of we think we're going to die. And as far as I know, they still haven't taken anything to eat because they're, you know, they listen to Paul, but blah, blah, blah. So they drop a big anchor, not one, not two, not three, but four, and I'm sure that's all the anchors they had, big yo mama heavy metal anchors. It's dragging along the bottom, and the wind and sea is still driving that boat forward. I mean, we are talking, this, this is a bad situation. I don't know what kind of storm this was. It was, was not a good storm, and they are being dragged in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. So they're trying to get out of there. <laughs> this is hopeless. Let's get out of here. So they're dropping it. Yeah, we're going to take care of some stuff. We're going to drop some more anchors. They're getting in the boat. They're planning to launch off and just leave these people. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers, at this point, they're starting to listen to Paul. Okay, they've, what else, you know, at this point? Uh, and by nature, these are very superstitious people. Anyway, the only holy man, if you will, is Paul. They're starting to listen to him. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. And I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of all of them, and then he broke it and he began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Now they're throwing the food over. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that had held the rudders and they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. Isn't this cool? It's like dun 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 And so they're driving it, man. They let go of everything, raise the foresail, and now they're just cruising. And they're aiming for that sandy beach. Come on, boys, we can make it. Water's splashing, wind's blowing, they're driving. And then, boom, the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow, which is the front of the boat, stuck fast, would not move. And the stern, which is the back of the boat, is broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. They're close enough now that the surfs are starting to come crashing and it's just beating the snot out of the back of the boat. It's breaking it apart. They are in bad situation. The soldiers, in a panic, planned to kill all the prisoners. 
to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. Why? Well, we looked at this many times in the book of Acts. If you lost a prisoner, they would kill you and not nicely kill you. They would slowly disembowel you, tear you to pieces, quarter you, have horses ripped. I mean, it was brutal. The fear that rested in the hearts of these men who were responsible for prisoners cannot be overestimated or overstated. They were terrified. Better to kill them all and explain that's what we had to do lest they get away. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. So Pastor Lathan would have jumped in first because he's a good swimmer. I would have jumped on a big plank of wood <laughs> and kicked. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. And that's where they finally discovered where they were. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood. So here we are. They have been out to sea all this time in terrifying conditions. They're making this run for the sandy beach, hit hard onto, a, onto the ground. It's stuck. The boat is being ripped apart. Everybody who can swim jumps in to swim. The other guys grab something. They can float. They kick their way in. They finally get to land. It's still rainy and it's cold. This has been a miserable, miserable experience. Then Paul, trying to be a nice guy, trying to help out with the fire, gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. What the heck is this? Right? You think you got a bad day. God doesn't like me anymore. It's terrible. You know, my boyfriend dropped me off of Facebook. Ah! You know, whatever people think is such a horrible thing for them. You know, oh, no, no, you know, oh, giving up hope, giving up faith. Why, if anybody had a reason to look to heaven and say, seriously, <laughs> it would have been Paul. What's he do? He starts crying uncontrollably. Says, God, why do you let this horrible stuff happen to me? Oh, I'm sorry, that's a different translation. <laughs> he simply, uh, <laughs> it fastened to his hand. When the islanders saw that a snake was hanging from his hand, they said to each other, holy cow, <laughs> this guy's got to be a murderer or something, Right? For although he escaped the sea, the goddess of justice has not allowed him to live, right? I mean, they were like, I'm saying, seriously, after everything else, your next step is to be bitten by a poisonous snake. But then Paul just shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. Well, the people just kept staring at him, waiting for him to swell up <laughs> or suddenly fall dead. Because that's what happened when you get bitten by this kind of a serpent. You're, you're toast. 
They don't tell him. They just go, oh, look at this. <laughs> just wait for him. <laughs> but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual to happen to him, they changed their minds and said, he must be a god. Because who can do that? Of course, this gives them a great opportunity to share the gospel with these people, right? How could that happen? I'm not a god, I'm just a man. But I believe in the true God who heals and delivers and says this. You know, the Bible doesn't say you won't have trouble. If anything, Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. The Bible teaches us he will deliver us from trouble, which means you've got to be in trouble in the first place in order to get delivered. That's the part we don't like, right? We think, God, if you cared about me, I wouldn't get in trouble. No, that's not the way this works. You get in trouble, and then he shows up and pulls you out of it. Uh, and his timing is very odd. <laughs> How about the snake not bite me? How about we make it to the sandy beach in the first place? But no, 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 all this trouble. So they're amazed by this guy. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us into his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. Well, his father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, he placed his hands on him and healed him. Well, this has a huge impact on, on all these people. You have to understand, when these early believers of the faith went preaching the gospel, they weren't just persuading people with great arguments. They were, and, they, and they write and say this. Paul said it wasn't through fancy words. You guys know this. It was through the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. They would show up, pray for people, and God would start turning their circumstance around. That's why I encourage people. Pray for people you know who their lives really suck. Say, well, they're not Christians yet. The point is he's doing to all these people they're not Christians either. He would show up first and do a miracle. Say, well, they didn't have any faith. Didn't matter. That was the power of God showing up to put the big emphasis on the power of the gospel. Now, we read in uh, was it Philippians, uh, Paul's friend was sick, almost died and stuff like that, and they talked about their troubles and how things went bad at times. Apparently, there were times where God didn't show up. Go figure why. Sometimes, you know, everybody says, oh, if you always have faith, you'll always get your miracle and turn out the way you want. No, apparently not. It didn't for these guys. But for some reason, if there's one place God likes to show up and blow people's minds, it's when they're first hearing the gospel. So let me encourage you. Encounter someone, you're talking about God, and, they, and somewhere along the line, they say, you know, I, you know, my grandma's really sick, or I got this. I say, man, do you mind if I pray for you? Mind if I pray with you right now? Oh, I got this court thing coming. I don't know what I'm going to say. Well, let me pray for that. Don't be afraid to do that. That's terrifying. At one level, say, well, what if God doesn't answer? Look, at a minimum, just the fact that you care to pray for somebody is a huge testimony to people. Now, they're not expecting anything to happen. <laughs> they think you pray for them, it's kind of like writing Santa Claus a letter. <laughs> it is, because they don't believe. They just say, well, what a nice guy. You, you wrote Santa a letter on my behalf. That was nice. So don't be afraid. Pray for him. But what? let God do his thing. Let God show up, and all of a sudden, an answer happens. And when the answers happen, it freaks them out. Wow, right? We just, you know, encounter people, try to let God loose on them. You say, well, everything's going wrong for me. It doesn't matter about you. Look at Paul. His life sucks. He just got crashed. 
Hadn't had a decent burger in, in two weeks. Right? Got to swim all the way to shore, gets there to be sticking lousy poisonous snake bites him on the hand. Then he goes and prays for these people. Don't be afraid to splash God on people. See what happens, because that is the greatest testimony you will ever have. And uh, any of us who, if you've ever been in a situation like this where you've done it, it's fun to do. It's fun that you encounter someone, I mean, they're being nice to you, they're open, you get a chance to share your testimony, pray for them, watch God, what God will do. Uh, it can be, <laughs> it reminds me of Pastor Ross <laughs> some years ago. He was uh, talking to some teenager at the, uh, on the other side of the building. And he's trying to get him to get serious about his faith. Yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's not taking any of this stuff seriously. And he's kind of wincing every time he moves. He says, what's wrong? He says, man, my back really hurts. Uh, Ross, well, let me pray for you. Well, before the guy could object, Ross just grabs him, <laughs> prays for him, lets go of him, and the guy goes, holy scuba. <laughs> Only he didn't say scuba. And he was so freaked out, it scared him. It stopped hurting, and he ran out of the church. Ah! You know, I mean, that's pretty cool, right? So what happens now? Now it's beyond argument. Now it's beyond, uh, you know, intellectual debates about this and how do you know God's really that? Is God so strong that he could make a rock that's so big he can't pick it up? All these stupid arguments people come up with. Now it's, holy cow, God is real because he felt that something changed. And that's what he does here. And that's what they did constantly. And that's why Christianity spread through all of this area so fast, virtually in times of human history, overnight, and changed the world. It's a historical fact. Christianity changed the world virtually from a timestamp period overnight and literally brought the Roman Empire to its knees. Very powerful. It wasn't because, and I love listening to these pinheads, you know, on history channels. Well, Christianity, because I got to explain, how did that happen? Well, Christianity was so new. It was an unusual concept about God. They never considered it before. And that's how they explain how Christianity, no, that's not what happened. They had so many different concepts of God. Remember Paul, he was in, in uh, was he in Corinth? Where was he? He was in, uh, in Athens, right? And they got so many gods, they didn't know what to do with them all. They even had one altar to the unknown God. They ran out of gods. Seriously, they missed out of God. I got another altar. What do we do? Let's call him the unknown God. Paul walks along and says, boy, these people are idiots. And starts, and starts preaching, let me tell you about the unknown God. And they all went, ooh, yes, let's find out. And he starts preaching God. Now, they all thought he was crazy, but some converted. Pretty cool stuff. So anyway, uh, when this happened, uh, and he prayed, he heals this father of the head ruler of the island, word travels fast now. And so when he had this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. And they came. And Paul would pray for them. And they would get healed. All these sick people all of a sudden are getting healed. In the name of who? Jesus. What kind of impact do you think it has on this little pimple? That's huge. All these people start converting to Christianity. Why? Because when they pray, something actually happens. God actually touches people's lives. They start to experience forgiveness of sins. Their lives turn around. They got joy instead of heaviness. Freedom instead of weight. Health instead of sickness. This is a powerful argument. And anybody's going with their version of their gods, it's just not the same. And it's extraordinarily, extraordinarily powerful. 
They honored us in many ways, and then when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies they needed. Well, by this time, they love these guys. Well, after three months, we were put out to sea. So there, for three months, they were there doing all this stuff, having an incredible impact on this island. Uh, they were put out to sea in a ship that had wintered on the island. So there was already one, some guys already, they were smart enough to park. <laughs> all these other morons are, oh, we can make it. Come on, we can do it. You ever see those things on, on these memes and stuff on Facebook? Why women live longer than men? You know, pictures of men doing the stupidest things on earth. You know, he's like, no wonder they die. So that's the guy who is, yeah, we can make it. Yeah, we're no problem. Everybody else is hanging low. And they paid the price. So there's already guys that were smart enough to hang out there. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. Why does he tell us this? He's just full of detail. There's no reason to tell us this. He's describing the ship. And this how was on the front. They had the twin gods of Castor and Pollux. I have no idea. Castor, all I know about Castor oil. <laughs> so we put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Rigium. So Syracuse is actually, this is Sicily today. And then uh, they get to Rigium, which is at the, uh, what was that town down here? What was it called, Joe? But what's that little, right here? No, 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 right there, on the, what the, between the two. It's called, uh, is it Palermo? Which side? Over here? Oh, is that where we stayed? Oh, I thought it was here. I don't know where we are. Where? That was 125 years ago. Yeah, was that over here when this big thing in here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Oh, yeah, we'd go down there and hang out. It was beautiful. Yeah, home of the mafia. La Cosa Nostra. All these Italians. So anyway, so anyway, they get to the tip of the boot because Italy looks like a big boot, right? And then uh, from there. Uh, so they were, arrived there, there, and the next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached... Putioli, Putioli, that's what everybody speaks in Italian now. All right. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And they did that, and then so we came to Rome, which is an amazing city. If you ever get the chance uh, to go to Rome, Italy, you really should do it. It is a stunningly beautiful city, and the history is just off the charts. And the thing about Europeans, particularly these Italians, but generally Europe in general, they don't tear down things. Okay? In America, if something gets to 150 years old, we rip it down, put up something else. You can literally, in Europe all the time, you can be driving along and you see buildings that have been there like for 500 years plus. Well, in Rome, you can literally see stuff that's there for 2,000 years. In fact, you can be driving along a road and it's paved and then all of a sudden, you're on cobblestones and stuff that were laid by the Romans. Holy cow! They say, hey, it's a nice piece of road. Why pour anything else? So they pull it right up there and just and then they pick up the road again and stuff like that. You be going, oh, they have this beautiful building here and right next to it is a fountain that's been there for 1,800 years. It's stunning. The history is amazing. And just going around and wow, it's, it's really... Do... Uh, do they actually have water pipes and stuff still up in uh, the aqueducts? 
Yeah. The Roman aqueducts, they still run water down them <laughs> to feed the city. I mean, it's just, they just keep, in America, we just blow that sucker up. Oh, build a new one, you know what I'm saying? So, so these, these, Europe in general is just surrounded by all this history. It's fabulous going through Germany and all these things, but Italy is like really, really something because they kept all of this. You ever go to Greece? I was never in Greece. Was it, say like, was it like that there too? Or? Yeah. They just keep everything. It's stunning, amazing. And you can see the, the you know, yep, all, that, all this beautiful, beautiful, amazing stuff that we would have bulldozed a long time ago. All right, so they finally came to Rome. The brothers and sisters who had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. I have no idea where all that is, but apparently they came a long way. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. So all these guys knew he's coming. The word was out. They came to join him and welcome him. Now he's still a prisoner, okay? But when he got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So he was under the most comfortable prison conditions conceivably possible at this time. There were times when he was not. I mean, his version of prison was brutal and they beat the snot out of him. And you know. But they were being pretty nice to him by this time. Uh, and again, because he's also a Roman citizen. He hasn't really been convicted of anything. Maybe that's the reason why, I don't know. But they're, they're basically, he's, you know, on, what do you got, Huber Law or something. <laughs> the, the Roman version of the Huber Law. So uh, uh, to all you people around the world, it's just a law that they can, people can stay at home and they put like ankle bracelets on them and stuff like that and they go to work and stuff, but they got to still come back to check in. All right, so uh, three days later, he, talking about Paul, called together the local Jewish leaders. When they assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. I'm not here to criticize the Jews. He wants to let him know. All right, that's not what this is about. So he, he meets all these Jewish leaders. They come to listen to him, and he explains all this. For this reason, I've asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with these chains. So he's explaining why, what is all this about. And uh, <laughs> probably, I don't know, I would have thought this very disheartening personally uh, because Paul is like, man, surely everybody has heard about all this, right? I mean, I'm a rock star at this point. Everybody knows who I am. You guys, I just want to explain what it's all about. And I'm not here to criticize anybody. I'm just here because of the hope of Israel talking about the Messiah. He's about to preach to them. And I just want to make all this clear to them. And verse 23, uh, wait, wait, wait. And verse 21, they said, yeah, actually, we haven't heard anything about you. <laughs> oh, what a slam. I think it's hilarious. And, and none of our people have come here from, from there has reported anything bad about you. There's people who actually came from Jerusalem. They never said jack about Paul. Now, you just got to wonder, is that really true? Or was it just a slam? I don't know. But apparently Paul was a little shocked, I'm sure, because he's trying to explain himself. He said, we don't even know who you are. We didn't hear anything. But we want to hear what your views are, because what they did know about was Christianity, which they called a sect. It was a sect of the Jews. It was like, 
you know, you got Baptists, you got Pentecostals, you got Catholics, you got Lutherans, you know, all these different religious sects, all under the banner of Christianity. Remember, in the early days, all Christians were Jews. So there was a sect of uh, Judaism, but by this time, it's overwhelmingly more Gentiles that were Jews, but it's still, they kind of refer to it that way. He said, so we want to hear what your views are, for we know that the people everywhere are talking against this sect. They're, they're mad about what's going on. And, and by the way, the number one reason they're mad is because they're going to the Gentiles. That's what ticked them off. Do you remember how when Paul was preaching in front of all the Jews and he talked about Jesus being the son of God and uh, raised, God raised him from the dead and he'd done all these miracles and stuff? They don't say anything. They just listen. There's no objection. And I've said this many times. One of the false things that people often say is Jews couldn't handle the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. That wasn't their problem at all. It wasn't until Paul said, and then the Lord told us to preach to the Gentiles, and that's when they went nuts because they didn't want, you know. Gentiles to them were just above cattle and sheep, you know. I mean, really. Uh, and if you ever get around a real hardcore, very religious Hasidic Jew, at some level, that's what he thinks about you, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's why, you know, some people, oh, Jewish people are kind of mean. What's well, not they're trying to be mean is they just think, you know, Ugh. you got cooties, you know? Because they're trained this from their whole, you know, it's all about being a Jew. And if you're not a Jew, it sucks to be you, which rhymes with Jew. So anyway, uh, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where, they, where he was staying. So he witnesses to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And he tried to persuade them about Jesus. So he opens up the scriptures and makes his case for Christianity. And there is no one more suited or equipped to do this than Paul the Apostle. He was highly respected. He had all the credentials, which he called Big Pile of Scuba, but it was a big deal to the Jews. And they listened to him and they're just... In and as, as he's explaining all these things, showing them clearly that Jesus was the fulfillment of, uh, of the prophecies, that he's the Messiah. Well, some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. And then Paul just rebukes him. He's had it up to here with these people. And he quotes to them uh, from Isaiah. A prophecy, they all knew this prophecy. Isaiah talked about people that were so stubborn. They couldn't see, they couldn't hear and stuff like that. And he points this verse right at them. So he said, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said this through Isaiah the prophet. Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understand. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving, perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Other words, otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. So he basically uses and hugely insults them at this point. He says, therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And this is like, the nail in the coffin at this point. From here on out, Christianity is overwhelmingly prom promoted and preached among Gentiles, even to this very day. And that's why you all are here, 
I don't think any of you here are Jewish. If you are, great, but most of you, I'm sure, are not. Uh, and that was that. And then we get this little paragraph at the end. So he basically sets it up where it sets us up so, so that we understand what had happened. It finally got to this point where from now on, you guys don't want to hear the gospel, so be it. We'll take it to the Gentiles. They'll receive it. And in fact, they did. They were glad. They were so thrilled to know that they could have forgiveness of sins, that God was alive and real in their lives. And this is the thing that's been changing people's lives for the last 2,000 years and most of your lives here. Is that same gospel is still alive and well today. So he throws in this little paragraph at the end. He says, so for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Now, the, uh, there's two uh, lines of thought on this. He basically leaves it here for two years he was there and then implied that at this point, this is when everything gets fulfilled and they say what was going to happen to him and he becomes a martyr. And uh, it Nero, I believe, has him killed. Uh, there are those who actually argue that, no, they think that after two years, they let him go. Uh, it's a smaller group of theologians who believe this. Uh, and then they say that that's, and, and probably, to remember we talked about in, in Philippians a, a few weeks ago, where Paul's writing about everything and, he, and he's in trouble himself, and he says, but, you know, I, I'm convinced by the Holy Spirit I'm going to come see you. I have this hope that I'm going to come see you soon. Well, I pointed out, no, he didn't. You know, he never made it to them. What does that mean? It means by faith, sometimes you don't always get the answer. And I think that's very, very clear. So there's a line of people who think, no, there's no way. If that's what he thought, surely that's what God was going to do. So they think that he got loose uh, at two years and he did in fact go to uh, Philippi and visit them. Uh, and remember his original intention after Rome was to go to where? Spain. Some of y'all pay attention because so he goes up into Spain. So that's what they argue, that he did that for a couple of years before he was rearrested, then brought to Rome and killed. I think it's a huge stretch. I don't think, nobody cares what I think, but I don't think that's what happened. I think this is the end for him. Uh, or they would have kept writing about it. <laughs> uh, so um, for two more years, and then we never do get to hear his argument before Caesar. What was that like? We heard it before King Agrippa and all these other guys, Felix and all, you know, man, it was before the Sanhedrin. We got all this play-by-play, -play, but for some reason, at this point, it just stops. It just stops. We now have no further detailed play-by-play -play record of what happens from this point on. It says, Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all the boldness and without hindrance. And, and that's it. All right? Now, um, what happens here now, so the rest of the epistles, there's a whole bunch of them we haven't gotten to yet. It's during this time that he writes these other letters. And, uh, uh, and that's where we'll pick it up as we continue to go through the New Testament in order. We won't be going back to Acts anymore. There's no more Acts to go to. Uh, and we'll uh, see what happens there. So we'll see now from here on out, he's writing letters to these uh, various believers, churches, individuals, Okay, so now according to most Bible scholars, the very next letter that he writes is to a uh, letter to Philemon, Philemon, which <clears throat> is on page 1023, <laughs> if you had my Bible, <laughs> so I don't know what Bible you got, but 
Philemon. It's right before Hebrews. You get to Hebrews and you take a left back up a little bit. And there's Philemon. This is an extraordinarily small epistle. It is just a few paragraphs. But it's an interesting letter. So Paul now, here's the story with Philemon. He has this friend, a name Philemon, who is this believer. And he's got a house. And he's got, you know, some believers were extraordinarily poor. Others were pretty well off. Philemon would have been in the second category. He's well off. He's got his own slaves and everything else like that, which was all status at, that, at this time. Remember, the Bible in the New Testament never condemns slavery. So why didn't they condemn slavery? This was a big problem during the Civil War because churches in the South would point out very clearly the Bible never condemns slavery. If it's so evil, how come the Bible never, you know? So that, that was all part of the argument and stuff uh, in the South versus the North. But clearly from Paul's standpoint and the New Testament standpoint, they weren't there to straighten out all and take on all the rules and laws of, of the cultures in which they were there and living in. They were there to change people's hearts and to bring the gospel to people. And one of the very standard things was people who had slaves. So Philemon has this slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus gets away and he runs. Uh, so I'm not sure what exactly the deal is. Apparently, he winds up at Rome. And we don't know the circumstances. At some point, Paul runs into Onesimus. Uh, how is this even possible? Well, God's at work, which is what Paul brings out in a second. Uh, so the idea here is now that Onesimus comes to faith. And now he's converted. And now Paul wants to send him back to Philemon. All right? To make things right. Because in that culture, he was still an indentured servant. He's a slave. So he doesn't just tell him to go back. He writes a letter to Philemon uh, to ask him to take him back. And he does it by guilting the snot out of Philemon. All right? Which, <laughs> which we'll read about here in just a second. So let's read it real quick, and then we'll wrap this up in the next four or five minutes. That's a very short letter. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ with Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. A lot of these people would have home churches. There's people even to this day who thinks that's a sign that that's what God always intended was for people to live in homes and that you shouldn't have buildings like this. You should just do home churches. There's a whole home church ministry, a bunch of people spread throughout the country. That's their thinking. I think it's really ridiculous. Uh, the, the idea, the reason they met in homes is because they couldn't meet anywhere else. They were hunted, for heaven's sakes. You know, it's like you can go to some countries like China. They also meet in homes. <laughs> you know, any place elsewhere is illegal. They meet in all kinds of places. So it wasn't the ideal. It just happened to be where they were meeting. All right, so he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all this, all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus I pray that your partnership with us in the faith way may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you want to do. <laughs> it's like, if I'm reading this, I'm going, what? What's he talking about? He's because he's in charge of the church at this point. He could pull rank. And say, hey, you got to do this. So Paul, so I could order you, but I want to order you. But really, he's ordering him. So it's really rather funny here. 
He says, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none, uh, uh, it is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm an old man. I'm in jail. I could order you, but I know you love me. You know, so he's guilting the snot out of this guy. And I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. We don't know how that happened again. No detail. Where's the detail? Luke, he's hung it up by now. We don't know the detail. At some point, Onesimus fall runs into him. The odds of this has got to be stunning. He brings him to Christ. Uh, Paul says to Philemon, look, formerly Onesimus was useless to you, troublemaker, he ran away, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. More guilt. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could care, uh, so he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. More guilt. But I do not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary, which is more guilt. <laughs> I mean, he's laying it on thick, right? I think it's hilarious. I was giggling reading this earlier. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you was for a little while was so that you might have him back forever. Uh, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. So he throws a little bit of the will of God in here, but he throws the perhaps in front of it, you know. Because sometimes, you know, you, why do things happen the way they do? I don't know. Maybe God wanted this to happen so a certain end result would happen. Now, Paul's not saying this. Paul isn't saying God forced him to run away from you so that I'd find him later, convert him, and I'll send him back. But that certainly sounds the kind of thing God would do, wouldn't you think? You get this guy safe if you knew that's what was going to happen? Who knows? He doesn't know. He's saying perhaps. Maybe God had a hand in all this. More guilt. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me an old man in chains who doesn't know nothing, a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me, more guilt. And if he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. More guilt. I, Paul, I'm writing this with my own hand. I'll pay it back. Paul has nothing. He's got jack squad. He's in jail. The guy knows he's in jail. Paul knows that he knows that he's in jail. And when he says this to him, he's giving him more guilt. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. Which is even compounded guilt at this point. Uh, you, th you think your mother's bad. You know, I gave birth to you. you know. Nine hours, uh, you know, for housing labor. I didn't complain. Did you hear me complain? No. Okay, mom. Yes, I'll take off the garbage. <laughs> I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. More guilt. Confident of your obedience. More guilt. <laughs> I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask, which is more guilt. This should be the letter of guilt. And one more thing, as if this wasn't enough. Prepare a guest room for me because I, I hope to be restored to you and answer to your prayers. 
which is why some people say they think he got loose at the end of the tears because of the letter to the Philemon and to the Philippians. But I don't think so. I think he's just laying more guilt on him. And then he wraps it up. Epiphes, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. So do Mark, Aristocardus, or whatever you say, Demas, and of course who? Luke. He's there through the whole deal. And he's been the one recording all these events. They're my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. All right? So that's the letter to Philemon. At some point while he's in prison, this little event happens. I just think it's hilarious to read it and put it in plain English because he's guilting the snot out of this guy, you know, to take him back because he could have really punished this man. I mean, he comes back. I mean, this, he, you really get hammered. You're a recaptured slave. Just think of what it like used to be in the South. They didn't give you hugs and kisses when you came home. So Paul is using every amount of influence and guilt he has on this guy. Take him back as a brother in Christ. And I can only assume that's exactly what Philemon does. It's certainly what I would have done. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your truth. Lord, thank you for these wonderful nuggets that we learned from the scriptures. We pray you'll help us to continue to grow in our faith as we learn the scriptures. Help us to be biblically literate, knowing what we should know and being able to answer questions when we are asked at some point and from a position of knowledge. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Continue on next Wednesday night.